Good morning, everyone. Holy is the Lord. What a beautiful time of music ministry this morning. Amen? Amen. Amen. We have a new memory verse for the month of October. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. We'll say it together for the first time this morning. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. So I have a question for us today. I wonder if there's any opinions in here related to participation trophies. And look around the room. You know, some of you, well, they never gave participation trophies when I participated in sports growing up. Others, oh, they all work so hard. They should get a little something, you know, to show that, that they work so hard for it. Even if they don't win, it's okay. Right? Some of us maybe think they're a waste. Some of us maybe see them as a learning opportunity. Maybe some of us look at them as a motivator that maybe they'll come back again and play next season even if they were 0-10 and and lost every game and still got a trophy. (laughs) Whatever you may think of them, one thing that a participation trophy or participation certificate does is it identifies that you did indeed take part or have a part in the season or the event or whatever it was that you got the trophy or certificate for. All of the experiences, all of the highs and the lows, the ups and the downs, the learning opportunities, all of the relationships, the wins and the losses, they are now a part of you as you have, at least for one season or one event, aligned yourself with whichever activity gave you the trophy or certificate. Concrete evidence. It's Paul's desire as a spiritual father to the people of God in Corinth that they would be participating in the right sorts of things. And last week, Paul explored and reminded us of the problem of idolatry. It was a problem that had plagued the Hebrew and then Israelite people of the Old Testament, but it was a problem that was still an issue for the church in Corinth, and it's a problem that's still an issue for our churches today. So last week, we looked more deeply at how this issue of idolatry affected the Hebrew people. And in our text this week, Paul is going to turn his attention to the example of Gentile believers whose backgrounds were informed by the worship of false gods in pagan temples. As the Israelites were to abandon the false gods of Egypt and find their hope and their dependence in Yahweh alone, so too were Gentile believers who were now converting to Christianity to abandon the false idols of temple worship and through the new way of Jesus put their faith and their trust In God alone. Paul will caution this morning that going back to participate in temples of familiar idols, taking a part in the rituals and the sacrifices and the meals that were once considered to be a part of this worship is very little different than the Hebrew people in the wilderness who crafted for themselves a golden calf, trusting in their own ways above the ways of God. 
Last week, Paul reminded us of our propensity to fall into the trap of idolatry, looking to ourselves as our own lords and masters, the evidence of which manifests in our complaining and our grumbling when things don't turn out the way we think they should. So you want to take your Bibles this morning. We're continuing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're in the second part of chapter 10 today. Verses 14 to 22, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 to 22. And Paul is going to again today speak to us as a spiritual father, a mentor of sorts. He's going to remind us as beloved sons and daughters of God that we've been given a blessed birthright to participate in. And he's going to warn us of the powers and dangers lurking inside systems and spaces of false and idolatrous worship. So before we read our text, let's turn to the Lord to pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We come together each week, we gather around it, and we reflect on its timeless truths. And Lord, we know that your Holy Spirit is working in this time and through this time, and that he is powerful to use your living word to apply to each and every one of us exactly what we need as we come. It's like the bread that you rain from heaven upon your people. You nourish us. You enrich us through it. For those who come today broken, mourning, hurting. I pray, Father, that there would be great comfort through the words on these pages today. For those of us who come perhaps content, might you shake us up a little bit. For those of us come seeking, might you direct us to the hope of Jesus. And might you use these words to change our lives. Father, I pray that we would take the truths we learned today, we would place them in our hearts, and throughout the week they would come through our minds that we might grow in our love for those that you direct into our pathways. And we give you the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 to 22. Paul's writing. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are they are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger 
than he. Paul begins with the words, therefore, my beloved. He knows, and we talked about this at the beginning of last week's message a little bit, making us aware of something that maybe we're comfortably unaware of is not always easy or comfortable. He knows our toes were stepped on a little bit. If somebody came up to me last week after the message said, hey, you stepped on my toes a little bit this week. I said, that's what Paul does. And he doesn't let up. He's continuing. But he wants the church to know. And he wants us to know. That though he's willing to go and to make us aware of these realities. That he still views us and sees us as his beloved. He loves and he cherishes the church in Corinth. He desires their best. And because of that, he's willing to walk with them through these difficult spaces. Making them aware of blind spots. Calling out troubling lifestyle patterns. Revealing to the people their own shortfalls and shortcomings. In their sin, he has not abandoned them. Rather, he's practicing this long-suffering kindness and gentle and merciful love. He's compassionate, yet bold. He's loving, yet deliberate. Think of our freedom in Christ. As I think about this, I like to, to think about this giant front yard that represents our freedom in Christ. Paul is the parent on the front porch. And we are the children playing in the yard. So much space for us to move about freely, to enjoy one another. So much to participate in. That unites us. But what is near the front of the front yard? What lurks? Usually a dangerous and busy road. A place where if we stray, we're in danger of being severely, even mortally wounded. Paul knows the danger perfectly. He's seen it before. In fact... He himself was once caught up in it. So anytime he thinks his children are in danger of coming too close to the road, in love, he offers warning, a bit of a redemptive redirection. And in verse 14, his redirection is clear. Take a look. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee! Once again, all of this in his writing is bubbling from within this pool of reasoning that he began all the way back in chapter 8 at the very beginning in this section of his letter. Paul's addressing the problem of idolatry in the church. Friends, an idol is anything that distracts or distances us from the worship of the living God. That's an idol. As we sit here today, what are the things in our lives that are distracting us, that are distancing us from the worship of the one true God? Could be an idol. And we know we're participating in idolatry or we are idolaters when that which we participate in is distracting or distancing us from worshiping the Lord. And so idolatry... Sometimes creeps in. 
Sometimes it bursts through the doors of our churches and it disrupts corporate worship. Last week, we witnessed how it had corrupted Israel and their worship. And we don't have to look too far past our own selves to see how idolatry threatens to corrupt, distort, discourage, even disorient the church today. Earlier in this very letter, Paul has exposed the idols of self-gratification, of self-satisfaction, self-indulgence, these that led to problems of sexual immorality within the church. He's already examined how the pursuit of knowledge, void of love, and rhetorical excellence led the church to prop up their leaders and divide over who was following this one or who was following that one. In chapter 8, he's talked to us about rights and freedoms and how these notably biblical ideas can effectively and efficiently be hand-spun into idols. In chapter 9, in the beginning of chapter 10, he's pushing back against the idols of security and comfort, of independence and self-reliance. And last week, we identified that what stands behind all forms of idolatry truly is the worship of self. Church, that that we somehow believe that we know better. We have a better way. We can figure it out on our own apart from God. The words that he's using here in verse 14 are very similar to words that he's already used earlier in his letter to challenge the faith community in Corinth to flee sexual immorality. Some of you remember these very words. We've already studied them. And as one biblical commentator quoted, he said this, quote, If in chapter 6, Paul is revealing that there's no such thing as casual sex, then in chapter 10, he's revealing that there is no such thing as casual worship, end quote. And for many of us here today, for many in the church today, idolatry has proven to be a far more effective tempter than the tempter of sexual immorality. And while sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is identified as a sin against one's own body, idolatry here, Paul is looking at the reality that it's a sin outside the body, one that infects and corrodes the beauty and the exuberance and the joy that is to be the hallmark of our corporate worship. Idolatry gets In the way of our joy in worshiping the Lord. Dividing. Disrupting. Moving us away from the one who wholly and fully deserves our energy. Our focus. And our attention. Church, it's not just that idolatry only affects us as individuals. It does. Absolutely. But from a biblical perspective. Taking the whole of God's word in view. The Bible has a far greater concern with how idolatry corrupts and destroys our communities of faith. Most every place we find idolatry in the Bible, we find it in the context of community. Groups of people being led astray in their worship of the one true God, abandoning him in favor of chasing a false God, a false idol, 
a false ideology, a a false political system, or any other man-made created structure. And what often follows idolatry in the Old Testament is what? When we see it, we see captivity. We see bondage. Even sometimes we see death. Paul sees the community of faith in the city of Corinthians as made up of a sensible people who should be able to see and judge for themselves that in Christ, what we have been called to participate in is far greater than any idol or pagan temple practice. Church, as beloved sons and daughters of God, we've been called to a feast. A feast. The dinner bell has rung. The meal is on the table. It's a feast that will forever satisfy with a cup that's never going to run dry. And it's the same for every single one who is in Christ. Every child of God partakes in the same body and the same blood in a meal that unites us in the one body and one blood of Jesus. And so the challenge is we're to flee idolatry. We're to give our attention to that which is uniting and drawing us into fellowship with both Christ and one another. Look again at the language Paul uses in verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break. Is it not a participation in the body of of Christ. And it's very interesting. This begins a pattern in Paul's letter to the Corinthians where he will continue to come back and reflect on and refer to the Lord's Supper. And church, how important is this for us to consider? Participation in the blood and the body of Christ is a pattern and a practice that God has intentionally infused into the church to keep us and protect us from idolatry. To remind us of the attitude and the example that we're to be following as we live in community with one another. And to highlight and give priority to the person of Jesus. The one who unites us and holds us all together. And church, you know as well as I do, we live in a world and a culture that's just consumed with Rampant individualism. It often leads to division and fracture. And we're to remember that as believers, we share in the eternal abundance of the one body and blood of Jesus. His body is the same for all believers. It's a beautiful truth. Whether you're a believer in Ghana, Africa, or whether you're a believer in the Middle East, Or whether you're a believer in the Ukraine or in China or in Haiti or Central America or South America or North America. We all participate in one body. And when we participate in the body and the blood of Christ, we should acknowledge that if we have Christ in common, if we share in him, then we will always have far more in common then we will have different. Last week we said it 
this way, and I think it bears repeating again here and reminding ourselves of this regularly as we live in community with one another and dwell together as sojourners for Christ in this world. Jesus is the far greater treasure. And all true believers share in Jesus. He holds all things together. And because of this, he is far more valuable than any matter which threatens to divide or separate his church. Oh, church, to treasure Christ above our personal rights and freedoms. To treasure Christ above our knowledge and our diminished understandings. To treasure Christ above our fears of loss, our discouragement, our disagreements, our disruptions. What would our churches look like today if Jesus was indeed seen as our one supreme treasure that he is? Truly the head, the life-giving source of all of our lives, the greatest common treasure we share, the trophy that we keep on the shelves of our hearts for the world to see. There's this beautiful picture that emerges related to Jesus as Paul writes to his church in Colossae. He says this regarding Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him. And for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, in everything, he might be preeminent. Take note, church. It's not our ways, it's not us, it's not our interpretations, our knowledge, our understanding, our positions, our need to be right, our desire for certainty. None of those things hold all things together. There's only one who's given the credit of holding all things together, and his name is Jesus. And it's true, in Christ All things hold together. And one of the ways we practice this principle here at Calvary Monument Bible Church is our monthly corporate participation in the body and blood of Christ. And we actually shared that just a few weeks ago. And when we did, we talked about the significance of the reality that when we partake of the body and blood, we are sharing in this one body that Paul is talking about here In Corinthians, sharing together in this all-sufficient, all-satisfying, eternally existing body of Christ. The one who gives living water that never runs out. The body from which food comes that will always satisfy and sustain. Jesus gives out of limitless abundance and overflow. And when there's idolatry that's threatening to tear apart the church... Or rend the community of faith. When our allegiances to the things of this world. Whether it's power or prestige or wealth. Or a political party or nation. Or whatever it might be that threatens to seek. Or to gain a foothold over our identities. We need to be reminded that our primary identity. 
is, a, is as a beloved son or daughter of Jesus. There is one to whom we look who can hold all things together. His name is Jesus. Amen. Amen. So Paul affirms, look in verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now we can follow this into the book of Ephesians. Paul says to the people of Ephesus in chapter 4, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Isn't that beautiful? We who are many. Church, we are many. It's amazing to me when you think about the different backgrounds. The other Sunday, we had all kinds of different backgrounds here. We had visitor from Ukraine. That was here with us the other Sunday. At the same time, we have uh, someone with us from uh, South America. We have uh, a couple with us that just came back from Mongolia. We have Haitians. I mean, there are a lot of backgrounds and cultures represented here on any given Sunday morning. And yet the Bible says as true believers in Christ, we are one. Participating as many, yet one. We share together in all of the spiritual blessings that belong to us in Christ Jesus. And to illustrate this, Paul's going to once again use the example of the Israelites. And he's going to turn to looking at their sacrificial feasts. He's relied heavily on their example in this chapter, probably because of his own heritage. These are the people that he knew best. But look at what he says in verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? And he, what he's talking about here is, is the Israelites, they had five different sacrifices that they participate in. And some of us know these. They were the burnt offering, the grain offering, we had the sin offering, the guilt offering, and the peace offering. And each of these sacrifices, they had significance. And when an Israelite or a Hebrew person participated in these sacrifices and offerings, they anticipated receiving a share of the blessings that went along with practicing this feast. For example, the burnt offering was a sacrifice of general atonement. It was meant to cover or to atone for one's sins. If a person had participated in it, they expected that their sins would be covered by the blood of the animal that they had sacrificed. Each of the other four meals or sacrifices had their own significant result that participants would have expected to share in. The Israelites knew what they were participating in. They knew when they went to this or that offering what was associated and went, what went together with it. And Paul here is concerned with Corinthian Christians who are knowingly and willingly attending temple worship services in pagan temples just to eat meat and drink the drink that's being sacrificed to the idols in those services. Comfortable in these environments 
perhaps from their past participation, the people of God in Corinth, the Gentile believers, had somehow disconnected their attendance and their eating from the false worship that was taking place while they were there. Not only was this practice confusing and obfuscating to new converts who had converted from pagan and idolatrous worship in these temples, but it was also corrupting to the believers in attendance. And it was staining the testimony of the broader, fledgling church that was budding in the city of Corinth. Paul's language is about to grow stronger. He's going to uncover what he is implying for those who are participating in this temple worship just for the food. Look at verse 19. What does he say? What do I imply then? What am I implying? Do I imply that food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? Now remember, Paul has used Similar thinking earlier in chapter 8. This is one section. It all fits together. He said this in chapter 8 verse 4. Therefore as to the one. As to the eating of food offered to idols. We know that an idol has no real existence. And there is no God but one. So is Paul contradicting himself here? No. The question is not about the nature of the idol. As Paul has stated. The idol has no real existence. Rather, the question is about what believers were really participating in when they attended pagan temple worship services. Now look at verse 20. No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God, I do not want you to be participants with demons. And church, there's this rather sobering reality that crystallizes here. And that's this, where idols are worshipped, demons are often present. And this should not come as a surprise to us. There are many in our day and in our age that would lead us to believe that our battle is against flesh and blood. But Paul, his understanding was very different, and it still applies today. Our battle, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of the evil in heavenly places. We have but one Lord and Master Church. He himself said, Jesus, that no one can serve Two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. He was talking about not being able to serve what? God and what else? Money, right? And Paul says it this way. Look at verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. In his second letter to the Corinthian church. He said it this way. In chapter 6. What accord does Christ have with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. 
As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And so in rather strong terminology, Paul is saying this in this portion of his letter, that it is objectively wrong for a believer to attend pagan sacrifices where idols are being worshipped. And in the context of these services, while in these temples, eat the meat that has been sacrificed to those idols. Paul says, no, you're participating in demons when you do that. According to Paul, doing so, it equates actually participating in this kind of demonic activity that he's warning about. And we've been given a far greater and far more hope-filled, far more life-giving birthright to participate in as his church. So Paul draws together in this portion of his letter with two questions that once again move us back towards difficult examples in the Old Testament. Once again, God's chosen nation is meant to be seen as a mirror Church, Israel provoked the Lord in the wilderness. They provoked him as a new nation. They provoked him as an established monarchy. In every season of their existence, the lure of participation in idolatry proved too tempting. And the chosen people of God failed. Church, we cannot fall into the trap of believing that this is a sin that somehow has lost its appeal or its allure today. Idolatry, church, is still present, still alive, and still well in Christian faith communities today. We cannot pull blinders over our eyes and believe like it does not exist. It doesn't always look the same as it did in ancient Israel. We haven't built temples to Moloch or to Baal, but perhaps we've built temples to the gods of red or blue. Could the idols of America today be found in the images of donkeys and elephants? Paul's words in verse 22 ring throughout the Old Testament and reverberate forward into this day and age. Look at what he says. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we Stronger than he is. He's pulling directly from terminology in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 32. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods. To gods they had never known. To new gods that came recently. Whom your fathers had never dreaded. Verse 20, and he said to them, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Church, this is been a challenging chapter for us and Paul will continue it he'll conclude it we'll wrap it up chapter 10 will close next week but it has been hard it's been revealing to many of us idolatry still affects and influences the church today 
It really does. And we need to confess of it. We need to repent of it. We need to ask forgiveness and fall back on the one whose blood covered that sin and who does forgive it. None of us are free from this. All of us at some point or another have wrestled with, struggled with, or been a part of something that has taken us away from the Lord. We've all been idolaters. In my time over the last few weeks exploring and unpacking this text, many questions came to mind. Some to which I'm still working through answers for. Others I may not ever fully understand. And I want to share some of these questions with you as a matter of reflection so you can see how I've personally reflected and wrestle with this text. And perhaps some of you may decide that you want to personally reflect and wrestle with this text in the same way. I'll put the six questions before you. Who or what are the idols of today? Question one, who or what are the idols of today? Question two, who or what are the idols of our American culture and world today? And there are many. Who or what are the idols of our American culture and world today? Question three, what is nourishing and enriching us that is not aligned with the goodness of God as revealed in Christ? Are we finding nourishment and enrichment outside of the things of God, the gifts that he's given us, his grace, his mercy? Question four, what do we endeavor to find satisfaction or fulfillment in that is other than or even opposed to Christ? It's a similar question to question three, but nuanced a little bit differently. Question five. We go back to Paul's terminology of being in a race. He talked about that at the end, I believe, of chapter 9. What race is receiving the priority of our participation? What race is receiving the priority of our participation? And question 6. What do our lifestyle patterns and attitudes communicate to those who have not yet believed about what we truly do believe? These are questions I have asked to myself and am continuing to ask to myself as I study this chapter and as we'll continue again in this chapter next week. They're difficult questions, but they're questions I believe, church, we cannot be unaware of today. We're to be in the business of identifying our idols, tearing them down, shattering them, getting them off of the shelf and making sure our eyes and our focus is wholly on Christ. And we've asked this question from the beginning of our study and we'll continue to ask it as we move through the book. How can we live as disciples of Jesus and function together as his church in an overwhelmingly unbelieving world? And as our team comes to lead us in a final song today, we may answer, Fleeing idolatry, as we desire to worship God alone, we embrace our identity as his beloved sons and daughters, regularly participating in his one body and blood. Our unity is full in Christ alone. We're going to sing of that reality in just a second. Would you pray with me? 
Father, we grab hold of those words and we acknowledge that they are the desires of our heart, that we do indeed want you to alone be on the throne of our hearts and our minds. Lord, as we've been reflecting on Paul's words the last few weeks, it comes to our attention that idolatry isn't an ancient sin. It's a sin for today. And it's one that threatens to divide us and threatens to thwart our worship of you, take time away from you. And so we ask as we go from this place today that you would work in our hearts and our minds and reveal the things in our lives that are idols to us, the things that we need to tear down off the shelves and replace with you. Might you be the most satisfying, might you be the most fulfilling, might you be the first thought on our mind and the first word from our lips each and every day. And we thank you so much for your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you go today, there are offering boxes in the back. The cafe is open today. If any of you want to buy Pastor Bob a cup of coffee, it was his birthday yesterday. Uh, Actually, the coffee's free, so you don't even have to buy it for him. Uh, (laughs) ABF environments are throughout the building today. In your weekly, there's all kinds of information, all kinds of upcoming events, sign-ups for Journey Through Grief out in the lobby today. Don't miss out on all of the opportunities to grow in your love for the Lord this week. Have a great week in Jesus, and we'll see you next time. Take care, everyone.